Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to Beyond Surviving the safe space for survivors of childhood sexual abuse to receive support, resources, and share their stories. Beyond Surviving is about freedom, healing, connection, and even laughter and fun. Most importantly, it's about letting go of the pain of abuse and finally moving on. I'm Rachel Grant, and for those of you who don't yet know me, I've been a sexual abuse recovery coach since 2007 and am the author of Beyond Surviving, the final stage of recovery from sexual abuse. I work with survivors who are sick and tired of feeling broken and unfixable, and I help them let go of the pain of the abuse and move on with their lives. You can learn more about me and the Beyond Surviving program at www.rachelgrantcoaching.com. And really thank you all for being here tonight, and I'm very excited to have here with me my guest, Deb Mayberry, and I'm just going to tell you a little bit about her before we jump into our conversation. So first of all, she's an author, singer-songwriter, self-defense teacher, entrepreneur, and a harmony integration coach. Her main focus is to help people work through their feelings about being sexually abused. She herself was violated by four different people by the time she was 11 years old. She facilitates groups and is an advocate speaking out for those who have yet to find their voice. Her mission is to remove the stigma and the taboo that surrounds sexual abuse so individuals can experience a healing journey in the absence of shame. She is the author of Unlock the Door Beyond Sexual Abuse and What Is Your Teenage Daughter Afraid Of? and contributed chapters in three compilation books, Ready, Aim, Inspire, Wealth Garden, and Thriving Loss. Deb, welcome. Thanks so much for being here. Hi, Rachel. Thanks so much. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. It's, it's been several months, actually, since I interviewed you for um, yes. for my little uh, series of, of um, shows as well. Yes, yeah, that is. I really enjoyed coming together for that, and um, from that connection, I was like, "Oh man, I really got to have you on the show and and bring your insight and your experience um, to the Beyond Surviving community." And you know, as part of that, I picked up your book, "Unlock the Door: Beyond Sexual Abuse," and have been reading through it. And um, just so you guys know, who are listening, um, "Unlock the Door" is a really interesting. Um, take on a a self-help healing book because instead of, you know, the expert, so to speak, kind of, you know, talking and teaching through um, the literature, um, Deb did a huge series of interviews with survivors and sat down with them and basically almost did like oral histories with them and asking questions and finding out what their experiences were like and then took those stories and transcribed them. So this is a real, what I love about this book is it's a way to connect 
with other survivors on a very personal level to hear what they experienced, what they felt, what their struggles were. And certainly I, as I was reading this, was like, yep, I remember that. Yeah, I remember feeling like that. And and really being able to identify um, with other people I think is so, so powerful, not to mention there are just some key aha moments. Um, So what I thought I would do to just kind of start us out tonight is read – one of my favorite quotes because I've been thinking a lot lately about the body and how it's connected um, to trauma and how we, you know, what's going on in the body when we're traumatized. I've done a lot of research and learning around the brain and what happens to the brain when we're traumatized as you too have, Deb. And, uh, but there's this one quote from one of the stories of the, my father's house, a memoir of incest and healing by Sylvia Fraser. And, At one point, um, she mentions here, you asked her the question, how did you feel when you first began to remember the abuse? And so I just want to read you guys a little quick excerpt here. I came to see that these memories are what psychiatrists call screen memories because they hide the larger truths hidden behind them. The intense detail of these memories make it seem that this is the full story and that nothing has been hidden or forgotten. I knew my memories of the abuse were real because my body remembered. It remembered what had been done to it and all the emotions that were connected with the abuse. It wasn't a matter of thoughts just popping into my head. My body would go into a series of convulsions that acted out the abuse, and I would relive the experiences emotionally as well as physically. My body knew. It was my head that had to catch up. And I just love that, Deb, because I know one of the things we're going to maybe talk about tonight are our coping strategies and and how we survive. And certainly, you know, uh, screen memories is one of those strategies. But um, what's it like hearing that from your book? (laughs) Well, thank you for, you know, Nobody's quite explained it the way you did you know, when you talk about oral histories. I mean, I, that, that really resonated with me, and that is that is so true. I'm, I mean, sometimes it's difficult to to identify or to express what is in that book. I mean, that's mm-hmm. the heart and soul of those people, and so many of them, for the first time, were sharing their stories as a whole story. They maybe shared little parts of it, mm-hmm. but there were a number mm-hmm. of people that had never sat down and shared everything and, you know, and through tears and it was so incredibly powerful and I really appreciate the way you way you explained it. It, it was, a, you know, on such a personal, personal level for those people and every one yeah. of those people contributed to that book to serve other people, to help other people and the testimonials I've received as a result of that are just Phenomenal! You talk talk about altering a brain. Well, those those testimonials altered my brain because I, I was just so overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. Um, even right now, I'm sitting here. I, this is crazy, Deb. You know, it's two years later, and I get tears in my eyes because yeah. of how serving those stories were. And I can't express enough how much I appreciated those people trusting me because, as you know, trust is a huge issue where mm-hmm. people have been uh, being violated. Absolutely. So. So that's a little bit of a tangent, but uh, Sylvia Fraser, she's a, a very well-known Canadian author, you know, a best-selling mm. author, and she had pretty much blocked everything out. She was a multiple personality, so she had no recollection. I think it was into her 30s. I mean, you re- you've read it more recent than I have, but she really didn't recall anything in terms of logical recollection, but she said, you know, she. I think she describes herself as quite a witch, <laughs> She would get angry very quickly. She was very hostile. I mean, she didn't like her father. Um, there were a number of signs that she was experiencing some blackouts, basically. She could block the abuse as, as a coping strategy, which a lot of people do, but she had done it right to the extreme. She didn't have a memory of what was going on. And it right. slowly... But she was even writing. She was she, she was shocked by some of the things that she wrote, the the graphics of the sexuality involved in what she was writing, mm-hmm. and she was just like, oh my, where's that mm-hmm. coming from? And right. she, you know, 
she really started to explore that. And then ultimately, yes, her, her body remembers. And, I mean, you know, this comes up over and over again with people that come forward and, and they they seek some type of therapy or coaching where they'll say, you know, my body. Like I had last night, actually, I was facilitating a group. And uh, the body, the, the brain logically says, I'm safe now. And yet there's a little creak on the floor at night, just nothing mm-hmm. there, just the house shifting. And that individual's body just starts to shake. It just, you know, they puts them right back to the nine-year-old, maybe running into the closet or under the bed, you know, father comes home and here's, you know, the first step down the hallway and it's a coping strategy. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, the mm-hmm. body's ready for flight and yet there's nowhere to flee to. That's right. So, That's right. Sylvia was fascinating. My favorite, my favorite quote that Sylvia stated in there was actually, I asked her about where she was currently with her feelings. And Sylvia is in her 70s now. And, mm-hmm. and she, this all came about uh, in the 1980s. She was one of the first people to come out with um, her story and share that on, you know, Phil Donahue and all those kind of... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> right. And, right. And but when she talked about where she currently was, I love what she said. She because I feel this way. She says, you know, I don't think about my father. I don't really feel anything about my father. It's like benign indifference. It's mm. just sort of like a wash. It's just sort of gone. And and I loved when she said that. And I've shared that with several groups that I've worked Powerful. with them later. Yeah, later on, you know, people aren't ready to hear that at first because they they can't make that connection that jumps too far. But as they move along and their perceptions are shifted a little bit, then they kind of resonate with that. Most people would like to be in a state of benign indifference, and that would mean, like you say, just moving on, letting go of some of the pain, living. Exactly, yeah, exactly. I love that. It's such a... A testament to to healing her story. Her story is just so powerful, and I also just have mad respect for her because um, you know it, it's women like her uh, who start who really forged the path. You know, I was thinking the other today as I was having you know like five different conversations on Facebook. <laughs> about healing and abuse and what can we do and how do we address this and, you know, looking at DID and this all of that. And I thought, wow, this is so amazing that we have this, you know, resource in this community now. Um, but, you know, folks like her, that was not the case. And she was very much a trailblazer, I think, in stepping out and saying, hey, you know, we're going to be heard on this and creating, changing that environment of silence. Um, would, would, do you feel that way about her as well when you were with her? Oh, absolutely. And it takes an incredible amount of courage to do what she did. And actually, I had two trailblazers in that book. The other one is um, Pat, uh, what was her name? Um, Wicklin, what was her name? Oh, goodness, um, I'm forgetting her name. But oh, yeah, she was the Wicklin. same thing. Yeah, it was the same thing with, with her um uh oh sleeping with a stranger. Yeah, Pat yeah. Brooklyn. And it was the same thing. through the same generation. She went on the Phil Donahue's and, you know, the early Oprah shows and mm-hmm. a handful of them, a number of them. And she had ugh, I mean, I can't even imagine coming out in that situation because it was her husband right. who they discovered was a, who was a pedophile. And he had violated yeah. the children in the neighborhood. And she didn't know even, you know, when other people suspected him. And for her, and she, and they were both psychologists. So, mm-hmm. you know, she mm-hmm. took so much heat because it's like, you know, what did you do wrong that your husband became a right. pedophile? Why didn't you detect it? And you must have known. And all of these innuendos, just horrific uh, amount of allegations yeah. that she had to over that period of time and it, it just completely devastated her and one day she just had you know the insight that listen you know I am a, a therapist I'm going to figure this out and she wrote up a whole plan 
on uh-huh. how she was going to go about her recovery. And just like she had been sitting with somebody else, you know, she sort of did the witness thing where you step out of your body mm-hmm. and then she mm-hmm. looked what the person is experiencing. And she wrote, she wrote out what, what she was going to um, follow and she, and she did it to the, to the T. And um, yeah. she wrote the book, I believe, after there were a couple of people, maybe her, I think her husband's parents or a couple, that a couple of people had passed on, maybe even him too, because I think he ended up with, there was some illness that he ended up with and he passed away. But she waited for a while before she told her story, but she knew right from the beginning that she was going to share that information. And just mm-hmm. like so many of us, we go into service mode and she wanted to serve right. people and she couldn't find anything. There was nothing anywhere that she could yeah. find. I mean, we didn't have internet, but, you know, maybe it was just barely starting. And we, right. No, I don't know what's going <laughs> right. on. I think it was there, but yeah. she, she couldn't find any information to help her through her healing journey because no women were coming forward saying that, you know, their husband was a pedophile. Exactly, exactly. And I love one of the things that she, one of the part of the exchange that you have with her where you're talking about this word survivor and she says, yeah, you know, I hate this word, survivor. I don't want to define myself as a survivor. And uh, I love when you ask her how then does she define herself, and she says, as a wonderful woman, and I've got the wrinkles to show it. <laughs> you know, there have been you know, good times and some great times, but I'm not letting who he was define my life. And I think that's so powerful, and I think that is a thread that continues throughout the book. And it's certainly, on, you know, in in my uh, world, something that I really love is, you know, tr- starting to change the way that we talk about and heal from abuse. And I have just such respect, and I really honor these women and men who have gone before us to make it possible where we can have, you know, a radio show where this is the topic and this is what we're talking about. And, um and people are getting support and care in that way. Um, it's just so, so cool. And I really thank you for, you know, taking on this project. Um, whatever inspired you, the gods, the universe, <laughs> chocolate, whatever it was, <laughs> that, you know, got it into you to, to do this book. I think it's just such a, a beautiful and, and amazing thing. So really, folks, if um, I really encourage you to just pick up this book and, and let it be, um, you know, a part of your toolkit for, for healing and recovery. And, you know, beyond being an amazing author, um, you also do really beautiful work um, with, um, with folks who have been abused. And I know one of the things that you really care a lot about is helping people work through their shame. And... Um, I wonder if we could talk about that a little bit. I'd love to hear your take on it and kind of what are some of the lessons you've learned along the way and things that you've found helpful when addressing this particular um, area. Well, you know, the, the real truth is, is I, I, for myself, I didn't understand what shame was. So I didn't really identify with shame myself. What I knew as that little girl who had been violated is that it made me feel dirty. That was the main thing that I felt. That was like icky, dirty, you know, and ultimately the last man that violated me. And he was just, he was sick. He was sick. Like it was, you know, and I think that's one one of the reasons why I have been able to cope as well as I, I have is that you know, if you read about sexual trauma, you know, we, for so long it was like, okay, if you were, um, if it was your, you know, an immediate family member that did the dirty deeds, if it was over a long period of time, if there was um, a penetration, you know, these types of things, they left the most damage. And what I've been reading lately and what I've discovered just by listening is that I often find that the greatest damage is when the person who has been violated, when they, like there was this anticipation that always went on. So if, say, uh, on Tuesday night your parents told you that babysitter was coming over on Friday night, 
And then you had this anticipate. We had to wait, 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 wait. You know, you knew it was going to happen, and you waited. Uh, or if you know it was your father, and you knew every night he came home, he was walking down the hall, he's going to violate mm-hmm. you. You knew it was coming. So you did that that fear, that anxiety, built up. Um, and another thing was is identifying that you were the bad person. So that's part of the mm-hmm. the, the shame, right? So. Um, yeah. I must have done something. Right. Uh, either I'm the cause. Well, yes. So then I feel ashamed because, and if you don't, especially if I enjoyed something that went on, because it's not all aggressive right. and, and and hurting, right? So if there's anything right. like that, a lot of males have that. So there's yeah. this buildup of shame in that sense. So what I found that was some of these other things that really layered on shame, like when people felt that they were to blame. They didn't identify. Like I always identified, and I don't know why it was from the time I was six before 11, if somebody did something, I always, in my mind, they were bad. They were wrong. Because um, mm-hmm. I knew that I didn't want that, and I, you know, tried to avoid those people. So, I, you know, it's so strange, Rachel, because so many people, almost everybody that I work with, uh, identifies very highly in the shame area, but right. I, I did. I was. I was. I felt violated and dirty. That's why I say sexual violation mm-hmm. and not sexual abuse per se. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. Again, dealing with shame, um, it's about being strong enough to have the most vulnerability, which means sharing your story in a safe environment with a trusted person who's not going to try to fix anything or uh-huh. Uh-huh. they're going uh-huh. to listen to you in the first stages. The person doesn't yeah. want to be like, yeah. you know, they want to heal, but they don't, you know, to fix somebody, you don't fix somebody. Um, somebody has to reveal and share what they felt, what they're going through, so then they can identify um the um, the main things you're struggling with. So then, as a coach mm-hmm. for yourself, then you can you can really see is it shame? You know, like what's the core within That's that? That's really person? sitting some, there. Yeah, some people need to start at anger. They are so angry. You know, in the in the book, um, Stewart, and he, he called himself the bastard child. And mm-hmm. when I met him three and a half years ago, he was just really angry, as a lot of people are. So it's important with each individual, I think, to identify the most prominent of the emotions and try to get people to separate a little bit those emotions from their thoughts so we can, okay. you know, we can listen and and see where the stages where we need to go next. Gotcha. Yeah, you know, I think it's a really interesting thing that you say there is that part of the biggest uh, problem is that we often don't even know what shame is. And so how do we, you know, really defining it and getting clear about it um, is, you know, always the first step. And it it, it is an interesting thing that part of, you know, what we're talking about today is, you know, different coping mechanisms. And one of the coping mechanisms, of course, is self-blame. You know, take it all on ourselves because that's just easier than trying to make sense of the fact that somebody who supposedly loves us is also harming us, right? Mm -hmm. And so this becomes a coping strategy of self-blame, taking responsibility. Um, The tricky part, though, is that then later on as adults, we get stuck in that cycle and keep taking the blame for things (laughs) that we actually Mm -hmm. are not, you know, responsible for and find ourselves oftentimes in... um, you know, in situations that we rather not be in or kind of being a doormat sometimes for people or always trying to please others and these sorts of things. Um, so I really appreciate your perspective on that. And I think that, you know, I also really love what you say there about identifying, you know, what's really up for people. And, you know, for folks who are listening, you can even just ask yourself that kind of a question. You know, what is the emotion that you're most present to. It doesn't even if you're feeling super sad, it doesn't mean there isn't anger there. It just might be, you know, down a couple of levels. <laughs> or if you're super angry, 
doesn't mean that there isn't hurt there, but um, but spending some time just in reflection and, and naming those emotions, naming those feelings, and knowing that it's okay. You know, I think whatever feeling you're having, I don't know what your experience was like, Deb, but I think a lot of people who I've worked with have kind of shut down their feelings because there wasn't really any room for that when you're, you know, when you're being violated, when you're being abused, it's like, you know, your choices don't matter, your feelings don't matter, your needs, none of them matter. And so we just kind of get the sense of, well, I guess I just don't need that stuff. So let me stuff it over here, you know, and become disconnected. Have you found that um, in your journeys with um, working with folks? Well, for sure. And first of all, I mean, holy cow, uh, Rachel, you just mentioned five different things I have to comment on here. So the, <laughs> the last thing that you said about, listen, the first thing that happens when people have been violated is you lose your voice. You've been mm-hmm. tricked, you're confused, and, yeah. you know, the thing that happens is then people latch in on into those coping strategies and they use the same coaching strategies later on in their life, like you just said. I mean, People end up being a doormat. Yes, I'll do that. Yes, yes, yes. They feel like they, they don't have boundaries. They don't know how to say no. They don't know how to say, listen, my pocket's really full right now. Like, you know, maybe you could get somebody else to do that. They, you know, there's a whole list of things that happen when your voice has been shut down by somebody that you trusted. I mean, maybe you don't trust anybody, so then you don't want to do anything with anybody. You're completely shut down. But um, you mentioned just back with the shame and guilt, and there's a really important sort of clarification thing. I mean, shame is, I'm bad, I'm bad. Like, I'm a bad, awful person. And the guilt is that I did something bad. So for me as a kid, sometimes I could say, oh, I did that bad. I shouldn't, you know, shouldn't have got in that car that day. And that was my opening story and unlocked the door. I did the wrong thing. I was, oh, why did I let him trick me again? But it was still his responsibility. And that's the the most important message that, well, many important messages, but that the abuse that occurs to a child or even as an adult that's violated in in a rape situation or a gang, you know, banging or something, the the person who's violated is never to fault, never at fault. And yes, if you're a a 14-year-old and you're wearing heavy makeup and sleazy outfits, um, are you going to get looked at? Yes. But like Tabitha in the book, she was out and she was drunk. She was hanging with a bunch of kids and one older guy came along and dragged her down the alleyway and raped her. I don't care what she was doing. He's responsible for those actions. But later on in life, she is responsible for her healing, right? So there's a distinction there. And then the cycle that you talked about. The cycle. Um, Who was it in... um, Gosh, I should have looked over the my um, the names. I've got so many names in my mind from so many different things from <laughs> people sure. in the same area. Um, and I'll think of her name, but I'll, I'll tell you the point is that what she said is, you know, you get violated as a child, you get abused over and over again, and one day the abuse actually stops. But then generally you implement a coping strategy, which means you take on abusing yourself where the perpetrator left off. And that means maybe, you know, shooting up drugs, alcohol, um, sleeping with everybody to hide the pain. Uh, It was Lynn McDonnell who said that. Lynn McDonnell. Yeah. She's also a therapist. And and that was very eye-opening when I talk about that with some people in group. And, you know, it adds into that you weren't responsible but you are responsible, and often people have more shame because of the coping strategies exactly. and the broken yeah. relationships. They have more shame yes. from that than they do yes. from the abuse. Not to say that they yeah, don't. Yeah, that's they such do. a big thing. Oh, man. I mean, you're hitting on so many really key key things there, Deb. We're going to have such a rich conversation because we're both like, oh, well, what about this? What about that? So. <laughs> You say one thing, it makes me think of five, and then I say one thing, it makes me think of five. But, yeah, I mean, just to really highlight that, it is absolutely the person who chooses to rape or who chooses to abuse their responsibility. It's their choice. They're at fault. 
And I think that more and more, you know, I kind of see this progression in, you know, the world of recovery from uh, like different stages. And first it was just, you know, getting the word out and being able to speak up about it. And I feel like right now we're in the, the era of ending victim blaming, raising consciousness about that, raising awareness about that. So that when men and women go and report that they've been abused, that they've been raped, that the society is there to support them rather than to ostracize them. And we are miles away from being there, but the conversations that I think are going to get us there are really starting to ramp up and show up. But um, And letting go of that blame is the gateway to letting go of shame. Because you can't feel shame about something that you didn't cause, that you didn't do, right? Uh, I love that, um, your description of that. And, uh, you know, I, I really relate to the last piece that you were saying there. There was a moment in my own healing journey where I sat down and I was like, holy shit, I have, like, picked up the baton from this person and have just been carrying it forward, you know. And he's long dead and gone, but here I am still punishing myself, still believing these things, still, you know, acting in ways that I had to behave in a way to survive then that I don't have to now, which is, you know, one of the things that I love about how you talk about it. It's like those coping mechanisms, it's okay that you had them, and it's even okay that you carried them around for a while longer. You don't have to feel bad about that. But once you start learning, it's like, oh, these things aren't serving me anymore. Let me put them down. And I'm I'm really curious, Deb, when you when I know that that's one of your passions is helping people change their coping strategies, set down what's no longer serving you. What do you really notice, or what do you see? Um, either, well, I have a lot of questions, but I guess the first one that comes to mind is like, what do you see most often stops people from putting from changing the coping strategies, from putting down the baton, for you know no longer carrying it forward. Well, there's no doubt to me when when they can finally speak about the abuse and speak in mm. a way that there's somebody, particularly a person who's trained to do so, then they listen to them. And I'm not talking about your average therapist. I'm talking about somebody that specializes in this area and is progressive and right. up to speed on what's going on with, with um, the coaching and really has a, mm-hmm. a really solid grasp of, um, you know, there was, I hear the stories, there was somebody um, just a short time ago who said, you know, the first therapist that I went to said, uh, when did this happen? And it was something like 30 years ago. And the first thing the therapist said was, well, don't you think it's just time to get over that? Like, just move on, forget it. What is the real problem? And (sighs) just devastating because actually sexual abuse is often the core problem of all the other things, like the alcohol yes. and, and, you know, yeah. getting sex in the park and, um, you know, being on the streets and being homeless. If you yes. can get at the core, the weight will drop off for somebody who just eats themselves mm-hmm. to death um, because mm-hmm. they don't want to appear um, attractive, um, because they hate themselves, they're trying to slowly kill themselves, they smoke like crazy. If you can get right. at the core... In a gentle way, but in a progressive way. I mean, you have to go at it. You have to, like with my coaching, you need to dive in there. And yes, Mm -hmm. there's some gentleness that goes on, but you have to shift um, your mindset. And that means allowing yourself vulnerable to share your story and to be open to new perceptions. And there are some Mm -hmm. people that, to me, will never recover because they're so identified with their story. Mm-hmm. And there has to be a shift that occurs in that area in order to move forward. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when you were talking about there's, you know, the consciousness level has risen so much and there's a, a lot more empathy for people that have experienced trauma. People are starting to see that this is trauma. And yeah. it's trauma every bit as much as, you know, the parent who's, whose child has been killed in a car accident. And uh, yeah. I'm sorry, I don't you mean, but the trauma is to me even deeper in so many ways 
because there's so much compassion for the person who loses their child or loses yeah. their arm in an accident, but there isn't or there hasn't been traditionally for somebody yeah. who has been sexually violated because people were just ignorant. We were just ignorant before don't we didn't realize the steps. But it yeah. shifted. I, I wrote um, one of the songs I wrote, there's a line in there that says, um, there's a movement building shifting pictures in the frame. Mm. And there's a real shift going on. And I mean, my goodness, yeah. just, yeah. just do a scan or a search on Blog Talk Radio and I'll, you know, it's just, you'll just get so much information coming up and Facebook and meet up right. and everywhere. There's just, there's so many people now that are stepping up and people are realizing as well that in serving other people that you gain so much healing when you're so ready much. for it. Yeah. Oh, Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, I think that you really hit on a very nice point there is that there's this moment that we have to step into being vulnerable and being willing to almost take a leap of faith. And I certainly know, you know, every person who comes to me, they never start the Beyond Surviving program going, awesome, yay. (laughs) I mean, there's an element of that, but mostly it's, oh, shit, oh, shit, oh, shit. And I'm going to do it anyway, because they've just gotten so fed up with it, you know, with their lives being the way that it is, that they're willing to kind of take that step. But we always start in that place of fear. There's always going to be a little bit of fear there, because you're going to be doing something that is going to stretch you. But my goodness, the rewards of that because abuse, it doesn't have to be a lifelong sentence. You don't have to identify and define yourself that way forever. And you really can, you know, let all of that drop away and just live the life that you most want to live. And I get it. It's been scary for me. I've had those moments of like, yeah, forget it. I'm just going to try to ignore it and forget about it. <laughs> that was one of my coping mm-hmm. strategies. What? I'm fine. There's nothing to see here. Everything is great. Meanwhile, I'm like throwing temper tantrums and fighting with everybody. And oh goodness, right? So well, exactly. It's like, oh, is is that what that fibroid is inside of me growing? And you know, there's uh, a whole list of physical symptoms from sexuality. That's right. Very common. If you look at very common and Louise Hay, right? Oh, go ahead, yeah. You look in that book with Louise Hay for the symptoms and and under sexual abuse, and I see that all the time. And there are a number of people that that I know that have had cancers and exactly. had all kinds of different things. And as they go through the journey, they're able to shed a lot of mm-hmm. those uh, those physical symptoms of of oh, sexual man. abuse. You know, and a lot of people they get right to the edge of the cliff before they come in, you know, where I facilitate it at the gatehouse here in Toronto. Um, A lot of people, when they come, they're terrified to come up those stairs. I mean, they're really afraid, but they're at the end. They're like the journey. They're a lot. I had a group uh, a very short time ago where basically everybody in that group was suicidal at some point, maybe not right in that moment, but half of the room was. And it's Mm -hmm. because you hold it and you hold it and you hold it and you hold out. And, you know, you mentioned you know, maybe you're you're sad or angry, but listen, all those things come out of fear, and that child yeah. is afraid. And you know, you end or you sorry, you either end up being really angry or really suppressed, and then that mm-hmm. that uh, fear that was anger, if you can't project that outward or actively with alcohol or or driving fast or giving people the fingers up and down the interstate, a lot of the time it (laughs) implodes. It is. Self-directed anger is what? It's depression, right? So, I mean, people are really suffering often when they, you know, they basically give up not dealing with it and then they have to come forward because they they just can't. They just can't do it anymore. It just gets so... The anxiety is incredible for a lot of people that, you know, first come forward, but they have so much, listen, they have so much courage and have so much resiliency because not only did they deal with the trauma, they learned how to cope. And all mm-hmm. those coping mechanisms serve them. If you're alive, it served you in one way or the other. You did the best you could at the time with what you had. So when you gain an awareness, you never go back. You move forward yeah. and start oh, to learn to the new tools 
that are going to come into your life and they're going to be a substitution. It's like creating a new habit. Mm-hmm. New habit is going to group. We're talking about it, you know. Yeah. One of the things that I uh, really am putting an effort into this year is starting to build connections with the medical community. Because so many people who come in to see the doctor because of aches and pains and sickness and this and that and the other, really the underlying cause is unhealed trauma. But many of the people in the medical profession don't know how to screen for that or what to do if somebody says yes. Uh, but so that's a kind of a, a passion of mine, something, an initiative that I'm kind of working on this year. And what I also really like about what you said, though, is that as you start to heal, a lot of that stuff just kind of drops away. It's amazing, you know, how the body just will hold stuff. But then as soon as you, you know, address it, it just goes, oh, okay, we don't need headaches anymore. All right. <laughs> Never mind. No more headaches. I'm fine. You know, it's really powerful. And I think it's, you know, for me, I'm always, I always love having conversations um, with um, folks such as yourself who have done some really, you know, hardcore work. And because I think you are uh, um, an inspiration, Right. Because I know in my journey, there were times where I was like, I don't even know what it would look like to not be. What does that even sound like? What if somebody who's been abused is now, like, okay with their lives and, you know, aren't feeling crazy all the time? Like, what do they even look like? What does that even sound like? <laughs> and so I really appreciate just the um, just the being of you because um, – when we're just starting out and we're not sure which way to go or if it's going to work or if we're, you know, we're actually going to be able to get there, I think it's really lovely to have, you know, people who we can look to and say, all right, well, she did it. Maybe I can do it too. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. And I asked myself many, many times, I mean, I ended up, I, you know, the reason why I, I wrote Unlock the Door was because I was laying awake one night and I had accomplished my goals for that year. It was November. And I had crazy, instead of crazy goal of reading 52 books that year, one a week, I had done that, finished that at the beginning of November. And I had also set a goal to get over my fear and sing in public and actually sing three songs I had written. And I had done that. And I laid in ba- right. bed and I kept thinking, why am I doing this? You know, like I rode across Canada, I've done fire walking, I've done all kinds of things and a lot of them are actually very healing things and and I thought why am I doing this and I wouldn't let it go and I kept asking the universe why like why do I do this because I was thinking about what I was going to do the next year and I kept thinking and thinking and thinking the same thought and I started to have flashbacks and I didn't suffer that like I would say I had memories but flashbacks are a whole different game and Mm -hmm. I didn't have severe Mm -hmm. flashbacks like some people do but that night they started to come and it was one after the other and things I didn't even think about. I was remembering from one person to another person and sensations, and I jumped out of bed. And I went to my computer, and I turned it on, and I wrote, unlock the door, or Debbie, unlock the door, because that's what, you know, the perpetrator had said to me about the last guy. And so I asked myself many, many times over the years, you know, why? Like, what, you know, and I, actually I went back to bed that night and I said to the universe, why, okay, thanks for that, because I was bawling, crying <laughs> to the computer. Yeah. And I'm sitting there going, what is this? I didn't understand. Yeah. What is this? And that's, mm. that's suppression 101, right? I mean, that's really packed down there. And I went back to bed and I'm asking again the universe, why would you do that to me? Why do I need this? And it came to me, the book. And that's why I wrote the book, because it was a vision. And I knew a, a whole number of people that I wanted in the book, and and I set mm-hmm. out to do that. And and I felt so such a relief. I knew that that was what I was supposed to be doing. So I, I pursued that. But the story that I share in the book, um, and the reason why, um, I think that I have, I have done very well, you know, in terms of the abuse that I experienced, in terms of my, my psyche, is because I feel I controlled a lot of what happened in, in terms of uh, avoidance, in terms of, well, you know what, I wished upon the last perpetrator, 
Um, <laughs> ruin the story. Yep. I don't want to say exactly <laughs> what it was. I like controlled how that ended. Yeah, yeah. And mm-hmm. um, it was pretty kind of a serious thing for a, a little kid to be uh, thinking. And um, but I felt I had control of some of that. And um, one of the people that bothered me was a babysitter. And uh, though I could never tell anybody about what happened, I remember saying to my mother that I didn't want her as a babysitter anymore. I did not like her. And I wasn't going to stay in the house if she was there. So she better get another babysitter. (laughs) So I felt like like in a way I was, and that's another thing. You know, if there are parents out there thinking, what would I ever do if my child was violated? You listen, you don't overreact. You you know, thank you for sharing. You know, thank you for sharing. Inside, you can be burning up in anger and hate and thinking you're going to go and shoot the person. But you need to listen to the child and thank them for sharing and how proud you are of them for sharing. Because if you freak out with the child and get ang- angry, then the child is going to have a whole host of other issues. And I see that all the time. Or if you deny it, oh, right. Well, we won't have the babysitter here anymore, but don't tell me. Oh, man. That feels Yeah. Oh, gosh. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's so, there there are so many layers, right, of of this. You know, we could talk for eight hours and still not touch on everything. But I I really like that. Um, I want to highlight something that you said there because, you know, as a, a young person, there was this element of choice that you had that you instigated and you said this and that and I'm going to, you know, push back here and I I can wiggle around here. And I think that part of what was really healing for me was recognizing that while I didn't have a lot of choices, I didn't feel that sense of choice when I was being abused, but my mistake was continuing to think that I still didn't have any choice. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. one of the things that really clicked for me and became really empowering was this moment in my 20s where I was like, damn it, grow up. Like, you have choice now. You're not that child. And what choices do you want to make? And I started out very small, like, you know, what what kind of ice cream do I want or what kind of, you know, where do I want to spend my day or what movie do I want to see? But just really starting to pay attention to the fact that I had choice and I didn't have to just take whatever was dished out to me anymore, but I could say something about it and, and be kind of the author of my life, even though as a little person, it wasn't the case. Yeah, it's really powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very empowering to actually realize that you do have the choice. And a lot of people, they don't identify with that. They've been harmed yeah. so deeply. It, the right. damage is, is pretty profound. And um, if they don't have the insights, they're like, you don't know, you don't know. And right. the thing that happens is a lot of the times that that individual who's been violated will attract those type of people into their life. Sure. It's just like the perpetrator can often identify which child to to violate. Um, so can an adult perpetrator, and not necessarily somebody right. who's sexually violating, but somebody who's you know abusive in uh, in other ways. And if you've never yeah. developed the confidence to stand up for yourself, you will you will attract those people. We always attract the lessons, you know, until we get the lessons and the learning, it'll come around and cycle through. Mm. The same thing with why a lot of people, you know, um, will attract people that have anger issues. If you're angry, you know, you're going to, it's some lesson that you're not learning or you're not seeing. And that's unfortunate, but it can be hard to get out. Like such a tricky thing for us to, to kind of, um, as people are trying to help people heal, it's like, okay, you, there's, there, there are choices you're making and there are ways that you're showing up in the world that is kind of attracting or putting yourself in situations and yet you're still not responsible for how somebody chooses to act. It's kind of one of those things where the where it gets a little sticky in there, <laughs> I find, because it's like at what point, where is responsibility, where does it start, where does it stop, Right. And so mostly what I hear you saying, and you know, correct me if I'm wrong, is that, you know, we have these opportunities that if we start seeing cycles in our lives, 
start seeing, oh, here's the same kind of guy again. Here's the same kind of whatever again. Here I find myself in this place over and over, that that's an opportunity to step back and take, you know, do a little inventory, self-inventory, and go, well, what what is it about what I'm choosing or what is it about who I'm being that might be contributing to the situation while still you aren't responsible if somebody decides to be abusive or or cruel. Is, is that right? Am I hearing that right, Deb? Yes, and it's complicated. At the gatehouse, we say uh, pause. Paying attention unveils sacred experiences. Um, mm. So it's important to pause and reflect on our lives, but the thing is you have to learn that. You have to create an awareness. And the thing that a lot of people who have been violated identify with is that they didn't even realize that there were parts of their personality that came out of the abuse. They can't even recognize mm-hmm. that. You know, mm-hmm. well, I just always was a. I just always said yes because I thought that's what we were supposed to do. You know, right, uh, right. So that's the, the tricky thing, and that's why programs such as this are so important because yeah. there have been a number of people in in the groups that I've had that that have said, you know, I didn't even realize that, um, you know, what like. Um, uh, I'm trying to think of some of the things. There's so many of them. I didn't even realize that, you know, the problem I'm having in their relationship is because of the sexual abuse. I, I didn't even realize that the, um, you know, the anger that I had was connected to the abuse. And that was one thing that with me is that, and I'm very, I was always very controlled and nobody would ever say that I was an angry kid or adolescent or adult. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was, it was always sort of running under there somewhere. And even when I played sports, I was always in right. control. That's, that's a symptom itself, as you know. I was always <laughs> in control yes. of my emotions, oh, yeah. my feelings, my thoughts, mm-hmm. what I did and said. Um, that was always there. But there was just subtle little anchor thing. And it was like, I didn't right. know. I couldn't identify what it was. I didn't know. I honestly did not know what it was. And I would ask myself, like, why do I feel angry? And it's like mm-hmm. I wouldn't express it, but it was. it's really weird to feel angry but not to let that out. And when I right. went, it was a research project why I went to the gatehouse. That's why, you know, I've learned so much is obviously interviewing the people, but because I immerse myself totally for um, mm-hmm. almost mm-hmm. four years, and it's just been reading absolutely everything. And then I realized yeah. that some of the subtleties, um, because, like I said, I'm not acting out. It would be different if I was smashing everybody's head with a belt, uh, with a bat. Um, <laughs> but people would I say Deb has a problem with anger. But um, the thing is, is that when I realized that, it, I was able to let it go. And... Mm. Or to still have that, but say, "Oh, hello, old friend. I know what you right. are." <laughs> you know, but you tonight I'm just yeah, going exactly. to go. I'm going to go out and get on my bike and cycle. You know, for you know, 50 yeah. miles or something. Yeah. But that trick is that the people get into the cycle, but they don't know what the core is. That's what millions mm-hmm. of people go mm-hmm. to Alcoholics Anonymous. And right. they can say whatever they want up and down. You know, hi, my name is, and I am. You know. Right. AA, narcotics, whatever it is. But they're always going to have a struggle if sexual abuse is at the core. Because if, I, had a, I interviewed a lady one time on another show, and, and she said, you know what? You can put all the whipped cream you want on top of that worm pie <laughs> because the worms are Ooh, still going to be inside of you with the worms. Mm-hmm. Until you mm-hmm. take out the worms, it doesn't matter how much yeah. cream, and it's going to be there, right? So yeah. it's so important to get to that core issue. And so what you said, I want to acknowledge with the um, the medical, um, mm. you know, uh, whether it's hospitals or private practice, whatever you're referring to, but that is huge, absolutely huge. They don't know how to deal with that. They don't know how to recognize it. I was on a, a, a talk show um, a few months ago in the fall, I guess it was, and a woman called in and she said, I am a medical doctor. What can I do to promote healing, to promote people that they will yeah. actually share? Because they won't share. She says, I know the symptoms, the physical symptoms, but people won't talk, you know. So I suggested getting pamphlets and maybe ordering a book like mine or some other books and leaving that out in the lobby 
so people could yeah, sort of familiarize themselves and know they're safe, know that there's somebody there. And it's not just you're sitting there one-on-one, all of a sudden you point the finger and say, I know you've been abused. Talk to me. Right. You know, it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't work that way. It's, <laughs> it's not a tragedy at all. <laughs> yeah, people are so locked down. They're so locked yeah. down because of the tabu and the stigma, and that's why it's so important to talk about it so mm. people can get to a place of healing in the absence of the stigma and the taboo. And that just requires talk and more talk and more talk. Mm-hmm. The people that are comfortable sharing, they are an inspiration to the people that haven't found their voices yet. Absolutely. Well, and you are one of those voices. And I'm so bummed that I didn't think to get a little clip of one of your songs so we could hear your singing voice in addition to your speaking voice. But can, where can people go to listen to your music? Do you have a YouTube channel or do you have it on the website? Yes. I can't remember now. Yeah, I have a – well, it, it's – um this yeah, this, this song, the easiest place to find it is just go on YouTube and just go to my channel, Deb Maybury, M-A-Y-B-U-R-Y, and there's a list of different things there – um, and it's called Little Girl, Young Boy. So you can also just Google that, Little Girl, Young Boy, Dead Neighbor. Oh, I love it. And the video is fabulous, too. Thank you. It was, uh, <laughs> that was, my, like I said, my, my greatest fear. My voice that I, I lost as a child was my mm. singing voice. And mm. I, I, don't have, I don't have a great voice, and, you know, I still have struggle with that sometimes. But um, in terms of wanting an amazing voice, you know, I wanted to be a combination of... Um, you know, Linda Ronstead and Joan Jett, and I don't know if that exists, but um, <laughs> but the thing is, it does now, <laughs> honey. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, not in, not here. Awesome. But the thing that I realized <laughs> is that my um my my vocal teacher, she said to me, and she's actually on song in the background, uh, Rosemary Phelan, and she said to me, you know, Deb, you are you're the little girl, your singing voice is that little girl, and and to, and like I've just with all the healing that I've done and listening to people, is that I have an acceptance of my voice. It is what as it is, is and yeah. um, and it, it it resonates with people, and um, it's a healing. It's just a quiet little gentle voice. It's so funny because if you could oh, see me in a martial arts studio, you know, I um, know with, going with, at it, self defense training. <laughs> you I are know, a it's mini so funny. woman. <laughs> Oh it's gosh. so funny because so when I put that out in in the fall, and it took off, it was starting to go viral and it got pulled off. I won't go into what happened, but um, there were so many of my friends, because I didn't tell anybody. I, I didn't mm-hmm. share, and I just one day I just started to post it. And people were shocked, just completely shocked. I had my Kung Fu master uh-huh. calling me. He was, I can't even remember where he was. He was somewhere with his son <laughs> on his 16th birthday or something, and and he contacted me in a Skype call, and he was just flabbergasted. Just couldn't believe oh, it. And I had another gal. Um, <laughs> we were t- we were going back and forth on Facebook, and she and then we called, and she called me, and she was on Skype and just crying. She was crying listening to it. Oh my mm-hmm. god! Yeah, nobody. Oh, it's powerful. Yeah, nobody could believe it, it was so my good. Voice. Yeah. So, but there'll be a CV. There'll definitely be a CV. Oh, I have a good. whole. Good. That's exciting. Oh, wow. Well, so um, I love that. So you can go and check out Deb's YouTube channel, Deb Mayberry. Um, you can also go check out her website, debmayberry.com. Again, it's D-E-B-M-A-Y-D-U-R-Y. And I just want to take a moment here um, before we wrap up to just say thank you because, um, you know, the, the effort that you are putting in um, on a daily basis to support healing and to get people um, compassionately uh, healed and better and whole. And really, I mean, I really hear your heart of like wanting to give back people their voices. And my goodness, when we have a nation, a nation of healed men and women who are no longer um, hurt, and hidden and held back because of the pain of abuse. My gosh, talk about a chorus. It will be a beautiful, beautiful sound. And so thank you, Deb, for all of the hard work and um, generous work that you do um, with with people. 
Yeah. Thanks so much. You know, I always say there are two streams. People come out of uh, a love stream initially when they're born, and there's also a fear stream. And so many people have been violated end up in that fear stream, mm-hmm. and it's um, having the courage to jump back and come from a place of love and service. And it's a it's a journey. Journey it can be a trick getting there, but it is possible. Absolutely, absolutely. And I hope for everybody who's listening that you do feel encouraged and inspired and uplifted tonight and know that we've kind of meandered around lots of different topics tonight and I hope that there was something there for you that you found useful and helpful. And know that you can always visit me as well at rachelgrantcoaching.com to find more resources. Until next time, everybody. Take really good care of you. We'll see you again soon. Thanks so much, Rachel. Thanks, Deb. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.